Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. Wow. Are you glad you came to church today? Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to praise Him, for He is worthy of our praise. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Last week, we talked about the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I summarize that by the phrase, holiness matters most. Say it, please. Holiness matters most. Thank you to all 15 of you. Now the rest of you, let's all say it together. You ready? Holiness matters most. Today, my wife's favorite passage, love your neighbor yourself. And our father taught us through his son that they're on the same level. That's pretty important, folks, that you understand that. That's, that's where the message is going to end. As I try to put the number two command on the same level with the number one command as our master did. Now, today, as a part of loving our neighbor. Come on, Ruthie. Come over here. Ruthie has brought gifts for ladies. Ruthie, I knew last week, I knew last Sunday, when Ruthie said, girlfriends will have a gift for you next week, and I was in big trouble. I knew because I knew what she was talking about, but we pulled it off with the Armstrong family. We were able to do it. Now, Ruth, you've had this quotation ministry for years, I guess, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. You brought one. Hold it up. Let me see it. This is it. Yeah. Go ahead and tell them about it. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm addicted to quotes, and, um, and I began collecting them years ago, and they just bless my heart. The holiness matters most quote is in there. That's John's. There's probably a few more of you in there. I think mine is the, um, I know I know we're right, but does God know it? That's one of mine. <laughs> yes, it is a joke. <clears throat> now, the bookends on this are, I'm a strong woman, and I have a prayer and a plan. Do not ever underestimate me. Now, that's not a women's power quote. That's a quote that says, when the finances won't stretch far enough, when the bullies at school are after your child, um, when your faith is kind of in tatters, that's when you're a strong woman and you have a prayer and a plan. The reverse is my favorite scripture, which you'll hear today. When Jesus said the two most important things are to love God and to love people. And I, that's the way I try to live my life Amen. to the best that I can. And, uh, I think so many issues would be laid aside if we could remind ourselves of this. Okay. I have to remind myself all the time. I know, I know you're supposed to preach, and I'm not. Okay, thank you all for coming today, girlfriends. Be sure and get some quotes before you leave. They'll be at the doors. We'll thank have, you. There'll be ladies at the door to give them to you <clears throat> as you give a gift to you. Go ahead, babe. Matthew 22, 34. Okay. Would you please stand for the reading of God's beautiful word? Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, my favorite. <clears throat> but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. And one of them, who was an expert in religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? 
And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Wow. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Would you pray with me, please? Father dear, how sweet it is to be in your house, to be able to look across the room and see the faces of others that love you. May it be said of us outside these walls, we are know they are we will know they are Christians by their love. May we be known by our love for each other and our love for you. How great you are. How what a great God. And we so unworthy stand to give you praise. May we bring you glory. May we feel your smile. May we be a pleasant aroma. And we will never forget, precious one. Thank you for the cross, your suffering, and your sacrifice. We love you in your holy, precious name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, darling. I love you, baby. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke's gospel, he was immediately asked, well, who is my neighbor? Now, whenever you have someone ask a question like that, you know that you're hearing from someone who wants to do the minimum that's required. It's like a person says, should I tithe my gross income or my net income? Right then, you know, we've got a problem. We've got a cheapskate in our midst right there. When you have to know the details, you know something's wrong. We shouldn't be looking... Uh, for loopholes to crawl through, we ought to be looking for floodgates to give through and to run through. Not the least, but the most. But he asked the question, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus responded by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, he wants to for all settle the question, you don't ever ask who my neighbor is. That's never the right question. The question was all wrong. The question Jesus answered in the Good Samaritan was not who is my neighbor, but to whom... Can I be neighborly? It takes it from pondering a proposition, who is my neighbor, to considering the fact that your behavior is what matters. To whom can I be neighborly? And then, just to make sure that we got the message loud and clear, Jesus one day decided he would show his people forevermore what it means to love your neighbor. The story is in Matthew 8. It is the story of the day when Jesus was at home in Capernaum. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. But once he became a public figure, he moved his home to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, which sits right on the Sea of Galilee, one day he went to synagogue, as he always did, always went to place of worship, each week, that was his custom, the Bible says. He went to worship. He was at synagogue. He'd healed a demoniac. 
and he had taught a good lesson. Then he had gone to Peter's house where he was staying and he'd healed Peter's mother-in-law. And word began to spread through Capernaum that Jesus was healing. What they did not know was that Jesus was about to show forevermore what he meant when he said, love your neighbor. So word had gone all through Capernaum. He'd healed a demoniac in the synagogue. He'd healed Peter's mother-in-law. And gossip was on the street. But it was the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, it was unlawful to even ask God to heal you because it made God work. And Sabbath was God's day of rest. So it was wrong to even come and ask. So people who lived near Peter's house, they just stayed home. Because they didn't want to sin by asking God to heal them on his day of rest. And then it was illegal to walk more than about two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath day. So people that lived several blocks away, they were getting the word, but, but they couldn't walk that far. So they decided they'd wait for the end of the day. And then there were those who were forbidden to come because they would have to carry a load. You were not allowed on the Sabbath day to carry a sick person on a stretcher, in your arms, on your shoulder. And therefore, caregivers all over Capernaum are watching their sick loved ones, desperately wanting to pick them up and carry them to be healed, but they cannot do it because it's Sabbath. Since there were no clocks in the ancient world, and in Israel people were fanatics about not hurting the Sabbath day, the Jews had devised in their law an interesting little rule as to how to know when the Sabbath is over. The way that you knew the Sabbath was over was when there were three stars visible in the sky. Sabbath ended about 6 o'clock at sunset, Jewish day, sunset to sunset. And so in late afternoon, you can almost feel it, can't you? Moms and dads have sent their children out to play, and they're asking their children, Have you seen a star? Any star out there yet tonight? Finally, a child yells, Star! And all over Capernaum, the crowd begins to murmur and to move. Finally, a mother who has a crippled son says to her, Well, children, do you see a second star? A little time went by. All of a sudden, a little voice from outside tells, Two! Two! I see two! And all of a sudden, people start gathering around. A man whose daddy has dementia, he walks over with that blank look on his dad's face, and he pulls him up close. The woman with the blind husband starts explaining to her husband what they're going to do. They're going to have to move fast. They've got to get there quickly, even though he's blind. The deaf sister in her home 
All day long, she's been sensing something's up, but she doesn't know what's going on. The crippled son, when the child yells two stars, she starts putting her arms underneath her son. She's not going to break the Sabbath day and lift him, but she's ready. And the grandson who cannot speak, who's mute, his mom and daddy have been moving him to the door. And then all of a sudden, from outside, a child yells, Three! 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 And all of a sudden, the history of the world changed forever. The history of the whole world. I call it Hospital Sunday. It was Jesus' gift to his hometown. It was his way of teaching you and me forevermore what it means to love your neighbor. He'd commanded it. He'd answered the question. But by his own life, he said, I will show my people what it means to love their neighbor. And so the one who had a dad with dementia starts running, and that blank look on that dad's face is he's trying to hurry to get there. The woman grabbing her blind husband and trying to make sure he gets there without tripping, going as fast as she can. The mother with the crippled son, grunting and groaning every step of the way, running with all of her might to get there. The deaf sister. The daddy starts saying, come, come, come. And they started running with all their might. Once star number three appeared, there was no restraining the people's desperation. Suddenly there was this eerie impulse. This is a strange phenomenon that came over this wave of sickness in Capernaum. And they started coming. Don't you wish you could have had a drone looking down, taking pictures? On Hospital Sunday, they were coming down these streets, coming from everywhere. Peter's house became the emergency room. The streets became the hospital hallways. The sidewalks were the hospital wards, and the pallets were hospital beds. And they came, and they came, and they came. Why? Because Jesus forevermore wanted his people to know what it means to love their neighbor. Jesus received everyone, and the Bible says he healed every human being in Capernaum. He healed every one of them. He loved them all. Had Herod or Caesar or Caiaphas been at Peter's house, only the rich and the religious need to have come. But since Jesus was present, the sick, the hurting, the weak, they felt welcome to come. And so our master, by his own life, defined who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is every living, breathing human being that ever comes within the orb and influence of our life. Every human being ever. Jesus ministered not only to his favorites or to a few select refined souls. He did good everywhere, every day, to everyone, to each he carried his own sunshine and springtime. Jesus was wonderful, and the people knew it. I'm going to say that one more time, and if you don't say amen, I'm going to leave. What, that door right there? 
Jesus was wonderful and the people knew it. In him, unselfishness forever climaxed. And his life will ever remain the highest ideal of pure benevolence. Jesus taught us to love everybody. And we should do the same. And a healthy church will do that. Now listen to me. Now you stay right with me here. A church worth its weight in salt will try to determine every hurt in its community and try to heal every one of them. You say it can't be done. I beg to differ with you. When I was pastor at Second Baptist Church, we locked arms with 18 different agencies in this city. We determined as a church, we would touch every hurt in the city of Springfield, Missouri. We decided this is who we would be. Every hurt, homeless teenagers, pregnancy care center, homeless people, men on the street, you name it. We adopted the public schools. Maybe, maybe the top most popular thing we ever did, we would go into the public schools and we would completely remodel the teachers' lounges because teachers always get the last billing. The bathrooms get fixed. Before the teacher's lounges get fixed. We would go in, completely remodel a teacher's lounge. That's what we did. That was the piston driving Second Baptist Church. All those years you heard about us, what was happening. That's what was happening. And we were driven by this story right here. He healed everybody. Now, if you decide you're going to obey the second command, love your neighbors yourself, as a church... There are two extremes that you have to avoid. Number one, you have to avoid healing and helping in people in ways that give Jesus no credit at all. We churches excel at this. We help people, we minister to them, but we never mention Jesus' name. He never gets any glory. Something is wrong when the Jesus who made us kind never gets any credit for the kindness. There's something wrong. The Bible is very clear. It says we are to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. People are supposed to know. Now, do we take out a megaphone and say, yeah, we're great? No, we don't do that. But there are ways by our jewelry, by something on our hat, a shirt that we wear, just a casual comment. There are ways we make sure Jesus gets all the honor and glory. Now, this really came home to me about six years ago. When I retired from second, I knew I had to do something, to, something big to keep my mind occupied while I made the transition into retirement. And so I decided I was going to read a biography of every president in order. And I'm, I read 20,000 pages. It took me two years to do it, but I did it. I made it. I got through. Well, right about in the middle of reading all those biographies, one of the most famous human beings in the United States of America died. If I called his name, everyone of you in the room would know who he was. He was a gentle soul. Everybody loved him. He was as precious as they come, and he died. And not long after that, a biography of him came out. And I thought, well, I want to read this guy's biography. I was about halfway through the president's. I need a little break, so I'll do that. I was blown away. I, I was so crushed. This man that the whole country loved and adored was a born-again, sold out in his own way, 
Christian who loved Jesus and yet had never one time in his life mentioned Jesus publicly. How do you do that? Cleansed, blood-bought, sought, changed, taught by Jesus? Making you one of the most beautiful humans who ever lived? And you get all the glory? People brag on how nice a person you are? And it's all because of Jesus? That almost sent me to my knees as I read that book. We must find ways when we bless others. Like I said, it doesn't have to be a trumpet. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there has to be some way, some little way in which people know that it's Jesus behind it. So that's the one extreme we have to avoid. Now, the other extreme we have to avoid is helping and healing solely to convert people, to win the lost. Our sole motivation for helping people must never be another notch in our tomahawk. Now listen to what I say now. If you would understand what Jesus meant by loving them, you must understand this paragraph right here. If you miss this, you miss the whole thing. The human body was made to be a receptacle for the Holy Spirit of God. That's what your body was created for. Your body was created to be a vessel, to be a receptacle in which God would live. That means your body was set apart for holy purposes even if God is not there. See, even a lost person, their body is special. So when you love your neighbor, you're not asking whether they're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter. Because their body was created to receive the Holy Spirit. And therefore, their body itself is holy. Don't ever forget what I'm going to tell you. Our master healed the ear of the high priest's servant, knowing that the high priest would never get saved. Jesus died on the cross for all humanity, knowing that the majority of people would say no to him. And now, you want me to blow your mind away? This city, the very city that he healed every human being in it, rejected him later. You think that, do you think Jesus did not know that was coming? Do you think he healed all his people, believing that somehow they would all get saved? No. He knew what was coming, and yet he healed every one of them. Our master was concerned not only for people's spiritual well-being. Jesus cared about the whole person. Spiritual, financial, emotional, physical. Every way that a person can live and exist. Every need that a human being can possibly have. Jesus cares about it. And a healthy church will too. Jesus took upon himself the obligation to help every hurt in the city of Capernaum. And when a church is healthy, it'll be just like him and try to do the same thing. He sends us, his followers, to enlist in a battle against pain. 
We were to engage in a practical conflict just to help people with their burdens and difficulties of life. My friend, Jose Blue, closest preacher friend that I have. Jose Blue has told me for years, John, lives are not changed by sermons. They're changed by sentences. He said, a sermon provides the impact and the push, but he said it's one or two sentences that drive the message home. That's been a great lesson for me to learn. All right, if I were to say, here's the hosey sentence of this sermon, here it's coming right now. Here's the, here's the sentence that the whole sermon pushes in. The love of God extended to every need of every individual is the most compelling assertion of the Christian faith. That's it. The love of God extended to every need of every individual is the most compelling assertion of the Christian faith. We are given the job, the task, the duty of proving with our lives that when we say God is love, it is true. The whole premise of Christianity, the whole basis of the crucifixion, the whole idea that God is love hinges on God's people showing love. D.L. Moody, remember I talked to you about D.L. Moody last week? D.L. Moody said, love is the lever that Christ uses to lift the world. Our sermons and our buildings, as good as they are, they're not really what the world needs. Directives sent down from a sequestered castle of asceticism, it doesn't, they do not become us. Debates of philosophy. Do you, do you think that the world is impressed with the fact that we conservative Christians are now considered a cultural hit men? Do you really think anybody's going to come to Jesus? Because we're known as the number one attackers of evil. Our deeds of philosophy accomplish little apart from deeds of philanthropy. We must first of all come across the lost and dying world. And I do not compromise. I'm as conservative as anybody in the room. I don't compromise. But when it comes to a lost and dying world, we must first of all come across as benefactors rather than as belligerents. But right now, Right now, I guarantee you, the world sees us as belligerents, not as benefactors, and they couldn't hate us more. And the old saying is still true. When it comes to evangelism, if you're going to win some, you have to be winsome. So, how we view them, how we view this swarming mass of humanity around us is going to determine whether or not our church will be healthy in obeying the second command. So I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you some four-pointed questions. What? Here they are, and then we'll be done. All right? Now, I don't plan to preach more than two hours more, so we're good. All right. That was a joke. Okay, now. now. Just four quick thoughts. Now listen to me real quick. See, what you think about lost people tells you more about you than about them. Because Jesus has already said they're your neighbor. Jesus already made that assessment. He said, that's your neighbor out there. The one you hate the most, that's your neighbor. 
So it really doesn't matter what you think. So when you, you pass judgment on them, what you think about them tells you more about you than about them. Number one, a lot of people look at lost people with apathy. Who cares? Whatever. All sense of feeling died long ago. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you cried over lostness? Could I get a, just a quiver out of somebody's chin in the last year over the brokenness in the world? Just, 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 one little, just one little tear in the corner of your eye. These people are going to hell. So when we look at them with apathy, no tears, no quivering, no brokenness, it tells us more about them than it does about them. Number two, some people look at them with better than thou pride. Well, we're better than they are. Leave people to their just desserts. Let them reap what they sow. They made their own bed hard. Let them sleep on it. This tells us, this doesn't tell us a thing about lost people. Jesus already said they're our neighbors. He's already passed that judgment. That tells us that we are full of a sinful, hellish pride. If we look at lost people, and we respond to them with contempt. A red flag should go up. Bells and whistles should start sounding a signal of alarm. Because it means, now listen to this. If we look at lost people with contempt, it means we are thinking of the lost. Not as needing salvation. But as needing to act worthy of salvation. Number three. Sometimes we view the masses with anger. They've got to get a grip. They need to straighten up. Now look in my good eye. Ready? Look in my good eye. Are we ever going to get over being mad at lost people for acting like lost people? My denomination, my beloved Southern Baptist Convention has been on a temper tantrum for 40 years. Mad at lost people for acting like lost people. Folks, we're talking about people, listen to me. We're talking about people who from this size right here, I don't care if they're homeschooled, private schooled, public schooled, charter schooled, it doesn't matter. We live in a culture where children are raised, find it in yourself. You can do this. You, you've got it. You can be successful. All you've got to do is find it inside yourself to become a Christian. A person has to say the exact opposite of that. That's why it's so hard for somebody to become a Christian. To become a Christian, you have to say no to what your whole culture has taught you since you were little. That it's inside you. You can do this. You've got the strength. You've got the power. Don't be angry at people who for their whole lives have been taught this. Folks, we were talking about people who after 9-11 turned out by the thousands for a prayer meeting led by Oprah. And I'm not anti-Oprah. But I don't want Oprah leading my prayer meeting. It tells me something. About these the people, they don't have a clue. Being angry at lost people, frankly, like lost people, shows that we don't have a Christ-like heart. The problem is never them. The problem is always us. Then number four. Some look at them with despair. It's hopeless. Might as well give up. The job is too daunting. This is me. This is my sin right here. It finally got to me. Sometimes I look, and, and the gaze almost crushes me. Racism is as bad as it's ever been. Anger, folks, 
Folks, let me remind you, anger is always only one step removed from violence. Always remember that. Anger, one step removed from violence. Just an angry culture, sexism, human trafficking. The ugly way that we talk about Muslims and Jews and immigrants and gays. And I just look at that and I say, I want to quit. I want to be, I want to be like Jeremiah and go live in a hut in a cucumber field. Just go. And yet I must remember, people are no more lost than ever. 21st century America is 10 times better than 1st century Rome, and we won Rome. We won the world once. When the world was a lot worse than it is now. We did, we did it once. We must remind ourselves that these people, they're no more lost than people have ever been lost. And all these vantage points are skewed. Jesus taught us how to look at them. No apathy, no contempt, no anger, no despair, just compassion. Jesus looked at them and he felt an ache in his gut. It hurt. It hurt him. See, the cross existed in Jesus' heart before they put it up on Calvary. It was here. He looked and he hurt. When was the last time you looked? And it hurt. I am married to the second commandment. My wife has lived this and personified it. I don't even know how to tell you. But I love to tell this. like a little story I tell about Ruthie. Then I'm done. Thank you for being patient. You're very patient. For, for 22 years, every sermon I preached was 25 minutes because I was on television. But then I retired and I wasn't on television, so I get to add all these little stories in, so it makes it longer. But anyway, okay, all right. But I'm still pretty close, you know, right now. I'm going to tell you this little story we've done. I was preaching at First Baptist Church, Mount Vernon, just a little ways to our west. And we got to the car. I just filled in on a Sunday. I just I got to the car, and I realized that we'd forgotten our stuff. We always have lots of stuff. So we went running back to the building, barely got in. Two ladies leaving. They were the last ones to leave the building. We barely got in the building. We ran up and got our stuff. We gathered up. We go back to the front door. We're going out the front door. I said, goodbye. And as I stepped out the door, I heard this voice behind me, a voice which I recognized, saying, well, how are you two today? And I knew right then it's going to be a while before I got to the car. Ruthie has, fought, has felt for many years that every human being she meets might be, might be God's way of finding out if I'm going to obey the second commandment today. She never sees anybody as an interruption. Always. Maybe this is the one today. Now, you obey the first commandment. You're here on churches and when you, you know, look what you do to make sure you obey the first commandment. Look at all the things you do. You have a daily private time. You come to church. You go to a small group. You have accountability partners. You, you, you have built into your life. Make sure that you obey the first commandment. Now, I want to ask you a question. If the second commandment is on the same level as the first, what have you built into your life to make sure you obey the second commandment? Do you have a place where you work to help the poor? Is there some place where you serve that you every week help the hurting? 
You do all of this stuff for the first commandment, and you need to. That's good. Well, what happened to the second commandment in your life? 